There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. On the readout. I'm proud to have been a pro-life governor, uh, and I will be a pro-life president. So, I mean, of course I want to sign uh, pro-life legislation. Uh, I think it's um, something that we uh, need to develop a culture of life in this country. The Republican presidential candidates, except for Trump, flocked to Iowa to embrace wildly unpopular issues like an extreme abortion ban. It's surely no way to win a presidential election. Plus, DeSantis in damage control mode after failing to launch without extreme awkwardness and glitchy failures. He's looking to reassure right-wing donors and activists that he's not Scott Walker or Jeb Bush. Also tonight, new reporting on a target letter sent to the special counsel, spent by the special counsel to a Trump staffer, which could be an indicator of how Jack Smith plans to prosecute the classified documents case. But we begin tonight with some advice for the Republican Party. To win elections, you got to read the room. You listen to the American people. You pay attention to their priorities. And then those Americans vote based on what they want. It isn't complicated. It's the kind of stuff you learn in the third grade. Except, whoops, you don't want third graders reading books anymore. But Republicans simply cannot read the room choosing instead to occupy a much smaller voting block of social conservatives who are hell-bent on policies that are not about the unborn, but rather about undoing 20th century progress. And so today, the 2024 Republican field, minus Donald Trump, addressed evangelical voters at the Family Leadership Summit in Iowa. The event was hosted by, by fired former Fox host, Tucker Carlson, who just days ago sat down to interview accused rapist and human trafficker Andrew Tate for his new show on Elon Twitter. Good times. Here's a sampling of what Republicans and Tucker's furrowed eyebrows pitched to evangelicals in the early voting state today. America needs positive, powerful biblically sound leadership to regain the high ground. How many COVID shots did you take and how do you feel about it now, in retrospect? How many COVID shots did you take? Zero. January 6th. What was that? Do you think that was an insurrection? I've never used the word insurrection, Tucker, over the last two years, but it was a riot that took place at the Capitol that day. At the same event, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed her draconian six-week abortion ban into law. I convened a special session of Iowa's General Assembly to once again address the most important human rights cause of our time, protecting unborn human lives from the atrocity of abortion. A worthy battle and one I will never concede. I have never been prouder to once again sign a bill into law. The governor's choice of venue for signing the bill is intentional, of course, playing into the weird right-wing delusion that abortion bans are popular. They're not, not even in Iowa. 
where 61 percent of adults say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Iowa voters don't want their freedom snatched away. They don't want abortion banned before many people even know that they're pregnant. Bans that shackle rape and incest survivors, many of whom are children, by forcing their tiny little bodies to give birth. No one wants this, except these, this tiny little evangelical enclave at this hidey hole summit and the trolls who want to control women. Forced birth is an extreme position and extremely unpopular. And yet Republican leaders are leaning all the way in as they giddily celebrate their violent agenda at Christian prom. Meanwhile, Republicans in Washington are waging a culture war with the military. Today, the House narrowly passed a deeply partisan defense bill that would limit abortion access, transgender care and diversity training for military personnel. Going all in on culture wars, pushing voter suppression as their only tactic to win elections, rinse and repeat. This is pretty much the Republican platform for 2024. The stuff that they've been doing for years, despite elections, plural, proving that the strategy is a dud. Voting is what forces democracies to listen. And yet the Gilead party is refusing to listen. Americans will reject this, of course. It's practically written on the wall in disco neon font. But these guys will not read the room. They're pretending that they're not or they simply refuse to do it. How else do you win? I mean, how else would you win an election that way? Here's a secret. You won't. Joining me now is Maria Teresa Kumar, president and CEO of Voto Latino. Stuart Stevens, senior advisor for the Lincoln Project. And Robert Jones, president of the Public Religion Research Institute and author of the upcoming book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy. Thank you all for being here. Robbie, I do want to start with you because the, the, the thing I really can't understand, and I do want to ask all of you about this, but I want to start with you because you're my numbers guy, is that abortion is not even a close call issue in terms of whether people think it should be legal or illegal. And that includes most American Christians, right? I mean, Talk me down on that if I'm wrong. I, I, I don't think there is a majority that's bigger than maybe 15 percent of people who want, for instance, a national abortion ban. No, Joy, that's exactly right. You're talking about reading the room. They might just want to read some polls, uh, you know, both nationally and, and in Iowa. So, again, you showed six in 10 Iowans support uh, the legality of abortion. It's two thirds of Americans that support the legality of abortion. Uh, you know, if you look at Iowa and, you know, this let's just be clear, this is a near total ban um, on abortion with very few exceptions. And we ask people, even in Iowa, right, we think of this the heartland, um, only 5%, 5% of Iowans support a total ban on abortion. Like that's how, how extreme this, this position is. And even if you look at um, other Christians, right, um, other people of faith, um, white evangelicals are by far the out. Only about a quarter of white evangelicals say that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. But most other Christian groups, including African-American Protestants, including Catholics, both Latino and white Catholics, uh, including Jews and other people of faith, actually have majorities uh, supporting abortion. And if you look state by state, uh, there is uh, no state in which more than 14 percent support a total ban on abortion. One four. Um, right. So that's how out of step. Um, you know, the, these, this ban uh, is. And it's worth noting, too, just one quick thing is, is that white evangelicals are this kind of shrinking outlier group, right? So even in Iowa, they make up only one in five Iowans, uh, right? Uh, so this is the kind of a minority of the Iowa population. There's far more unaffiliated Iowans, uh, religiously unaffiliated Iowans, 29 percent uh, compared to only 19 percent of, of Iowans who are white evangelical Protestants. So this is an extreme 
uh, a group that holds extreme views on abortion and it's a shrinking and graying uh, portion of the electorate. This, well, Stuart, I didn't major in math, but I can do a little math. That sounds like math that you cannot win an election. You used to run a Republican campaigns. Make it make sense to me how appealing to 15 percent of the population, even in a state like Iowa, can ever get you to win or even be reelected. I don't understand what their math is. Yeah, it's even worse than the just the top line numbers show, because the intensity here, when you ask what is the very favorable and very unfavorable, it has shifted now. So the very unfavorable uh, on these new abortion restrictions is twice and more what the very favorable is. So, um, you know, there was a time when there was more intensity among the anti-abortion crowd, but they've now achieved a lot of what they wanted. And it's probably a natural sort of human reaction. The intensity is on the other side. It's the same way with guns. Um, look, the group that, that they were meeting with today in Iowa, it's a, a group that has one thing in common. They, they always endorse someone. Whoever they endorse has never been an elected president. So I, I think they're going to keep this perfect string intact <laughs> this year. Um, I, you know, Donald Trump uh, didn't win Iowa last time, and they played hail to the chief when he walked into the room come uh, the following January. So um, it, it's really this sort of cycle that the Republican Party is in of trying to be more pure. And it's just going to you saw Tucker Carlson asking the governor of Arkansas if he had a covid shot. I mean, you know, this is just absurd. Eighty five percent of Americans have covid shots. Right. So, you know, if I'm in politics, I'll be with the eighty five. You can have the other. Um, It's really a non-governing party that is just spinning deeper and deeper into this darkness. Right. I mean, they'll be pure, but I don't see how they're going to be purely elected. I mean, this is an MTK. You, you know, you listen, I, I think people forget Barack Obama won Iowa. Like oh, Iowa yeah. is not a, a, a completely unwinnable state for Democrats. It just happens to have this far right evangelical government right now. But, you know, is is it because states like Georgia got away with this? Republicans in Georgia passed almost the same kind of law and got away with it. Texas, they did it and got away with it in the midterms. All of them got reelected. Is it because Democratic voters aren't punishing people? Because even and and independents, independent voters are very much against this stuff. Is it because these guys aren't being punished for it by getting voted out that they're doing it? I think part of it is absolutely they're not getting punished enough. But I also think that we have to look at a lot of these electoral maps, and some of them are very much jam-packing these concentration of voters through gerrymandering, where it becomes harder to compete. You mentioned a state like Texas. Texas, technically in the last census, Joy, they gained basically four congressional seats. Three of them were supposed to be Latino, and one of them was supposed to be African-American. That's not how it panned out when you came out with the district maps. And that is one of the places where we have to systemically work on to ensure that there is a real imagination of how do you actually conduct the census and what does the implication of that census uh, have when it comes to drawing congressional lines. But taking a step back, what the Republicans right now are doing is that they're trying to solidify a base for their primaries. And so they are going as far right as possible. But this idea that they're going to be able to tack into the middle to win the hearts and minds of the majority of Americans, 
doesn't make not only sense, but it's impossible. The only pathways that they have is the highly you know, disenfranchisement that they're doing at the right. state level. It's one of it's a state like North Carolina and even Georgia and Iowa and Texas that you mentioned. It is that kind of restrictions. When you have all 50 states basically saying, yes, we certified the 2020 election. Yes, it was above board. And then right shortly after, literally the month after in January, they introduced over 300 pieces of legislation to impact 2024. So you need to have a battle at the courts. You need to reimagine how we do uh, gerrymandering in this country, like get away with that. But at the end of the day, you also need to talk to voters because we're expecting on the eve of 2024 election over 14 uh, excuse me over 12 million more young eligible voters than the last go around and what they really don't believe in are these culture wars yeah i mean and yeah. the, the the question i guess i have to robbie is so white evangelicals are in, in, the can, in the tank already, right? That 15% are, are going to vote for whatever Republican, it's, if it's Tim Scott. I mean, I think DeSantis is unelectable. I, he's, he's unelectable. His positions are so far to the right. But that base will vote for whoever they, they throw at them, whether it's Trump or not. But you have to, at some point, be able to draw other people. If you're the abortion ban party and you're the party that's embracing hate— I don't understand how you get beyond that. Is it that they just no longer care whether or not they're able to win elections? They just want what they want. Well, I, I think Maria's right here that they're in a, a bit of a, a death spiral, really. I mean, they're kind of locked in. They've become the party of a shrinking demographic. They are the white conservative Christian party nationwide, about uh, two thirds of Republicans, nearly seven and ten are conservative white Christians. Uh, and in, in Iowa, in the caucuses, it's two, it's about two-thirds um, uh, are white evangelical yeah. uh, Protestants in Iowa. So I think it's, it's this, they're stuck in this kind of primary uh, mandate uh, that, that does put them in a very difficult position, if not an impossible position, when it comes to the general election. Because you go out that far to the extreme, again, 14% of Americans in any state uh, supporting a policy like this it, it is really hard to come, and I think it nearly impossible to come back to the center um, and, and certainly win uh, when everything's above the board. And, and you know, uh, David French um, wrote, I think, a really smart piece, Stuart, where he talked about, he sort of compared what Elon Musk has done to Twitter um, to what Trump has done to the Republican Party. Essentially, they're in this constant sort of fight and flight, right? They're, they, they feel like they've been pushed to the margins culturally. And so they're like, we're just going to use raw power. We think the left used raw power to take over all the institutions, the elite institutions, the universities. So we're just going to bludgeon them with our policies and force them on them. In the end, that doesn't yep. get you cultural power or actual power, or does it? No, look, I mean, I, I think Republicans are aware that the country is headed to a minority majority country and all the Stephen Millers in the world can't do that. So you look at Trump's coalition. Uh, it's exactly what we've been talking about. It's 85 percent white in a country that's 60 percent white, maybe 59, less so since we've been talking. And that's not going to change. And so what they're trying to do is curate the vote. They're trying to make it uh, more difficult for those who are younger, those who are at the lower economic end of the spectrum, to vote. Um, and, you know, 
I would embrace culture wars if I was a Democrat, if I ran the Democratic Party, because they're winning the culture wars. Yeah. You know, don't run away from this stuff, because the flip side of this is that more people are for this. It's like all these culture wars Republicans are picking. Who won the, the Nike versus Donald Trump? That's correct. Uh, and Disney's winning We are out of time, but I just want to give MTK the last word here, because Shouldn't Kim Reynolds be target number one? If they need somebody to blame for who took away their right to their bodily autonomy, there she is right there. She's got to seek reelection sometime. Well, and I have to say that her audacity of saying that she cares about unborn children, and then you actually look at how many children are in poverty in Iowa, then you know that it it is not sincere. And it, what we need to make sure is that folks coming out of this, uh, out of these bands, what you're going to start hearing on the, a lot of progressive movements, the real stories of women who have had to decide between their fetus and their life. Yeah. And in cases where mothers have lost their life, this is no joke. And everybody keeps saying that, it, it, you know, the, the government should be involved. No, science should be involved. That's and right. we have to make sure that we remind people at the end of the day that this is a moral obligation to keep our citizens as healthy as possible. The, the job of politics is to tell people who did it to you. And it's very clear because they're telling you they're going to keep doing it to you and do it to you on a national level if they get the chance. Maria Teresa Kumar, Stuart Stevens, Robert P. Jones. Thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, the DOJ reportedly sets its sights on a Trump employee who may have lied to them about Trump's classified documents hoard. That and much more on the many investigations targeting the former president. But The Readout continues. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. There has been a steady drip of developments today on the Donald Trump legal front with new reporting on the multiple investigations from special counsel Jack Smith's office. In the investigation of Trump's mishandling of classified documents, ABC News is reporting that Smith sent a target letter to a Trump Organization employee who was suspected of lying to investigators. The letter reportedly included threats of potential charges. It indicated that the staffer might have perjured himself during a May appearance before the federal grand jury hearing evidence in the case. Investigators were scrutinizing the employee's role in the handling of surveillance footage at Mar-a-Lago, specifically from the security camera near the room where classified documents were stored. Remember last month, the New York Times reported on the special counsel's pursuit of whether Trump and some of his aides sought to interfere with the government's attempt to obtain security camera footage from Mar-a-Lago that could shed light on how those documents were stored and who had access to them. Meanwhile, in a follow-up to what we were talking about last night on Trump's efforts to remain in power after his 2020 election loss, 
CNN is reporting that the special counsel has interviewed the secretaries of state for both Pennsylvania and New Mexico. That would mean the special counsel's team has now spoken to or subpoenaed officials in all seven of the key states that were targeted by Trump and his allies to present slates of fake alternate electors in order to subvert the Electoral College. Joining me now is former federal prosecutor Ankush Karduri. And thank you very much for being here. And <clears throat> let's start with um, the surveillance tapes. Um, what do you take from this target letter? Does it sound like they were trying to stop the surveillance tapes maybe from being turned over? What do you make of it? You know, it's unclear from the reporting. Um, as you as you indicated, this, the reporting suggests that the concern, the sort of proximate concern is maybe a, a, a misrepresentation or a lie. Uh, in, to, to investigators in the course of the investigation. Um, but it does seem like potentially surrounding that, that lie maybe potentially could have concerned um, the, the production of those materials. But it's it's really hard to say based on the sort of limited details that we have at the moment. If somebody gets a target letter, does that indicate you're definitely getting prosecuted or that there still might be an attempt to flip that person against their main target? Well, it can it can still mean that there's an effort to flip that person. Um, it does mean, pursuant to Justice Department guidelines, that prosecutors believe that there's substantial evidence linking that person to a crime and that that person is a putative defendant. So you do not want to get a target yeah. letter. It means that almost certainly you're going to be charged or that prosecutors want to charge you. Yeah, I would definitely not want to get one. I've heard that the reactions tend to sometimes involve maybe needing a diaper after getting it. Um, let's talk about this second piece, which is all of the secretaries of state now from the contested state. They weren't really contested. Biden won them. But then Donald Trump attempted to contest them and create these fake slates of electors. The fact that now all of the attorneys general have been interviewed, does that indicate for you anything about a potential timeline uh, to where this case might be coming to a conclusion? Or well, I mean, it further suggests. Right. I mean, it further suggests that they're nearing possibly the conclusion of the main thrust of their investigation. Um, you know, this is stuff that, you know, quite honestly, I was sort of pulling my hair out through 2021 and, and much of 2022. I mean, when you heard the call with Brad Raffensperger, right, any like sentient person would say to themselves, well, I wonder if Trump or his allies did similar things in other states, particularly right. because flipping Georgia would not have been enough to win the That's election. Right. right? This was something that should have happened very, very early on. I say better late than never, of course. Um, but um, it does suggest that they're sort of, you know, ticking the boxes of the sort of things that we would want to see them do to complete an investigation like this. There have been some some Hail Mary. I would have to describe them as Hail Mary attempts by Donald Trump to try to erase the charges against him, um, trying to basically ask a federal court to sort of nix the, the Georgia case, which doesn't seem likely. They also attempted to get a delay. Um, in the trial in Florida, the documents case. This was some of the response from Jack Smith's office. Defendants Trump and now to claim unequivocally they cannot receive a fair trial. Prior to the conclusion of the next presidential election, they urge the court to withdraw the current scheduling order and request the court not even consider a new trial date in some unspecified later time. There is no basis in law or fact for proceeding in such an indeterminate and open-ended fashion, and the defendants provide none. The rest of it well, was even more shady, I have to say. Um, that was maybe the least shady part of it. I mean, they pretty much dropped a hammer on that claim. Can you foresee a judge in any way taking Donald Trump's side, given how strong the refutation of it was by the government? Yeah, you know, I, I, I would hope that a judge would not take this open ended notion of uh, for you know trials at some point in the future, maybe, maybe not uh, very seriously. But of course, yeah. 
we know this particular judge may be particularly inclined toward Trump, and she has issued rulings that have been drawn extraordinary amounts of widespread criticism. So it's 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 hard to say here. I mean, I I will say, you know, I, I had the fortune of you know uh, conducting a poll for Politico fairly recently, and one of the questions we asked respondents was, when should this trial occur? Sure. And almost two thirds of people said that they wanted it. And two thirds of people, including almost half of the Republican respondents, said that they wanted this trial to occur before next November. Right. And you would think that, you know, for the good of the American people, people might want to know whether or not this person was adjudicated guilty or not guilty. You know, even if Donald Trump were to somehow manage to get acquitted, he might want that for his own, you know, campaign to, to know how this played out. Yeah, I mean, that was one, I, I thought, very plausible theory, but we now know from their submission that <laughs> he does not want a verdict <laughs> or a trial before before this. Um, but it would seem, at least just based on the information that we at Politico uh, uh, released, the American public wants to know the results yeah. of this before they potentially consider reelecting this man. Yeah. Um, and then I just, well, I have to ask you, I, I feel like I, whenever I get somebody in here, I it, the question of whether or not Donald Trump could try to get out of this with a big deal, uh, state and federal blanket, you know, admit crimes, get a deal. Do you think that that is plausible? I have a hard time seeing it at, at, at this moment. I mean, quite apart from the fact that temperamentally, he just everything about his life suggests that he would not be open toward <laughs> sort of any sort of compromise or humility or, you know, admitting any sort of wrongdoing. But it would be hard at this point. Um, there, there, you know, these multiple fronts, the case has been filed, prosecutors intend to move forward, his time to resolve this, he had, he had a plenty of time, actually, sure. to resolve the federal case without charges. And he blew right past all of those opportunities. Yeah. All right. Well, we shall see how it all plays out. And Kush Carduri, thank you very much. And coming up, Hollywood actors and writers are calling out the CEOs cashing in on their hard work while they're struggling to pay the rent and put food on the table. The readout continues after this. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. The eyes of the world, the eyes of this nation, workers everywhere are waiting to see what happens in this moment because we bring attention like you to this critical story. If we don't nip this in the bud right now, we're all going to be at risk of losing our jobs and that is not okay with us. What the hell is this to be so greedy to try and squeeze working people out of their wages is insanity. That was SAG after President Fran Drescher on the picket line today in Los Angeles on the first day of the Hollywood actor strike. 
actors, writers, and allies picketed at various entertainment locations in Los Angeles and New York City, fighting for a contract with increased minimum pay rates and streaming residuals and guardrails when it comes to the use of AI. It's the first time actors and writers have been on strike at the same time since 1960, and they say they are ready for a long fight. People seem to think of actors as being rich and famous, but most of us are working class citizens in blue collar like most of America. Rents have gone up, the cost of living has gone up, groceries have skyrocketed, and we still can't make a living wage, and that's not right. Morale is high. Everybody is here to support the cause and to get what we feel we deserve and need. We're here for the long haul. I should note that Comcast, the corporation that owns our parent company, NBC Universal, is one of the entertainment companies represented by the studio executives that they are striking against, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. And some employees of NBC Universal are represented by the Writers Guild. Joining me now is Chris Witherspoon, CEO of Pop Viewers, an MSNBC entertainment contributor. I always smile when I say Pop Viewers. It's one of my favorite things. <laughs> um, so good to see you, Chris. Thank you, Joy. Live to, in the flesh. Under these yes, circumstances. Live in, I mean, listen, it's so great to see you in person. Yes. That's a new thing. Um, let's talk about this because yeah. I feel like, you know, if Nicole Brown was on with us um, last night, I think she made a great point, is that people perceive that all of the actors actors are like her, right? Yeah, Somebody yeah. famous that you know, but most actors aren't. They're working class, as you heard in those clips. How long can they hold out? Not the even Nicole Browns of the yeah, world, yeah. but the average actor. You know, I talked to my friend Tembi Banks, who's a acclaimed director, former NBC page. We were talking about this, how most actors are really freelancers and writers, too. They live and they get, you know, cast on a show. They have a few months that they're working. But in between, they're kind of just like living off those residuals, off those savings. And that's why the residuals piece is so important. Right. Because when you're doing a streaming deal, you don't get the same residuals that you got when you were doing network deals. That's why the, the nanny, Fran Drescher, read Folks for Filth at that press conference and explained right. that back when I was on the nanny, we were living, you know, half the lamb or right. half the hog. We were getting so much more money. But now in the streaming era, those residuals are laughable. And yeah. it's actually kind of criminal when you stop and think about it. It feels like the business changed so much uh, when Netflix went from being blockbuster video. Remember you said yeah. they, they used to be a blockbuster video sort of clone to being streaming. How did the business not adjust? Because you're right. There used to be these series that went on for 22 episodes. A writer could get paid for the 22. Yeah. If yeah. it re-aired, they got money. How could it be that now they've got a business where people get almost nothing and from the streaming. CEOs get a lot. A uh, million. Um, but I think that's why millions. it's going to take this strike. It's going to take a very long time because you have to literally redo the business model for all these companies. You know, the networks back in the day, the way that you were able to get residuals and also the, the fee that you paid for talent, it was so different. And now I think a lot of these, these streamers got their hand caught in the cookie jar. They have been churning out a ton of content. We have about eight major streaming platforms right now. And that all happened in the span of 10 years. Right. And I think that the, the rate in which they've churned out content, they haven't, you know, made the really, uh, I think, important step of taking it into account how they can keep that up and still pay these actors and these writers what they really deserve. You know, I watched uh, Black Mirror. I love Black Mirror. Joan is Awful was the first episode, and it was literally this. It was AI. They'd taken Salma Hayek, an AI version of her, and used her image without her consent, but somehow in a contract she didn't realize she signed it away. That's what these actors are fighting against. How real is that threat, and can they at this point get that taken care of in a contract? And I think Duncan Ireland, he uh, was like the counter 
counterpart to Fran Drescher yesterday. He's the IT chief negotiator. He was so phenomenal in giving this, I think, real depiction of AI. He said that they came to us and said there's a generous offer that they will scan extras faces on the first day of them being an extra. And, you know, there's extras in all the shows we watch. Sure. Then they will use their likeness in perpetuity. They'll pay them for one day. Right. Use their likeness in perpetuity. Uh, and they'll be seeing themselves several years later in a Paramount Plus show. Paid. And they're not getting paid. That is how real. And this AI technology exists. And the new Disney film, uh, Harrison Ford's new film, Indiana Jones, the right. first half hour of the film, that is not Harrison Ford as we know him. That's a, a, an AI version of Harrison Ford that Disney utilized. They and licensed they old footage from Lucasfilm. Harrison Ford agreed to it. So this technology is out here. It's not far from the distance. It's a real and present threat. How long is this going to go on, do you think? I think a very long time, again, because t- to make this work, they have to get rid of the overhead. They're going to have to restructure how Can't they the do business. Can't the overhead be the CEO's salaries? Bob Iger's out there saying they're being unrealistic. He's got, tw- uh, what, $21 million contract. And Disney and the first Disney streaming services, the first quarter of this year, lost a billion dollars lost a billion dollars in revenue. All these streaming services, no one's profitable. They're all losing money. So I think to make this where they have to go back to the drawing board, look at their business models and rethink how to be fair and pay folks what they're worth. And that might mean instead of putting out 12 things on Netflix per month, you're putting out like three shows, you know, and you're paying folks their worth and their value. And and maybe, maybe shaving down the CEO salary a little bit so you can make some room. And those bonuses, hundred million dollar bonuses, ridiculous. If they're losing money, they shouldn't be getting bonuses. Tell me how that math is math then. When you're you're not profitable, you're going to get a hundred million dollar bonus. Look, where do you do that at? Look, okay. Uh, Chris Witherspoon, uh, thank you. Thank you. Always Joy. great to talk with you. Still ahead, the incredible shrinking campaign of poor little Ron DeSantis. The Republican Party's most awkward candidate tries to reassure donors as he struggles to gain traction. You know, it's just not looking good, though. We'll be right back. To say it's been a rough week for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, DeSantis, is a massive understatement. After weeks of shrinking poll numbers, DeSantis's floundering presidential campaign team is desperately trying to reassure donors that his campaign only looks stalled and that this is all a part of their plan. According to a confidential memo obtained by NBC News, the campaign says their plan is to focus on the early voting states, and they're not yet putting any resources into Super Tuesday battlegrounds, which in the world of campaigns is not a great sign. But it may be too late, too little too late for DeSantis, as some of his wealthiest donors may already be looking to jump ship. Politico was reporting that some donors who'd hoped DeSantis could beat Trump are now giving Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina a serious look, saying their faith in DeSantis has been shaken by early campaign missteps and his hardline positions on abortion, trans rights and other culture war issues. Even conservative media kingmaker Rupert Murdoch, who favored DeSantis since early on in Biden's presidency, is starting to look elsewhere, reportedly telling people he wants book banning Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia to jump into the race. But it's not just DeSantis's presidential campaign that's faltering. It's also his leadership in Florida. Right now, the state currently has the highest inflation rate in the country, a reported brain drain as university professors and teachers leave the state and open education jobs remain unfilled. More than half a dozen conventions pulling out of the state, citing the unwelcoming environment for LGBTQ and black people and outrage from women seniors over a new law that ends permanent alimony. Oh, yeah. And also an uptick in cases of malaria. And on top of it all, this week, Farmers Insurance announced it was dropping tens of thousands of policies in Florida, just the latest insurer to pull business from the state that sees a disproportionate amount of climate disasters. And how did Governor DeSantis respond to all of this, you may ask? 
by telling Floridians to just wait it out through hurricane season, saying in a radio interview, knock on wood, we won't have a big storm this summer. Joining me now, Florida State Representative Anna Eskamani and Dean Obedala, MSNBC columnist and host of the Dean Obedala Show on Sirius XM. Uh, Representative Eskamani, I want to start with you because Florida's feeling like a hot mess uh, <laughs> right now. It doesn't seem like anything is going well. It's kind of shocking to me that this man is running around the country pitching himself to make America Florida. Florida's a mess. You don't want to be like Florida, Joy. And first of all, it's great to see you and Dean. You're absolutely right. I mean, Floridians cannot afford Florida right now. And, and breaking news, another insurance company is dropping policies in Florida. AAA also announced that they're dropping uh, policyholders in both home and auto in our state because of the impact of climate change and lack of action. Our Republican supermajority leaders have decided to not take. I mean, this is a really dire moment in Florida where everyday people are struggling make ends meet. Meanwhile, our governor is not even appealing to, you know, his base of voters, despite the fact that he's gone all the way to the far right in an attempt to do that. Let me let me play uh, Ron DeSantis, however he pronounces his name, uh, being asked about his crapola poll numbers uh, on his favorite network, Fox. Why is it, in your estimation, the numbers have not reflected your success in Florida? Well, I think if you look at the people like the corporate media, who are they going after? Who do they not want to be the nominee? They're going after me. Who's the president of Mexico attacking because he knows we'll be strong on the border and hold him accountable in the cartels? He's going after me. So I think if you look at all these people that are responsible for a lot of the ills in our society, uh, they're targeting me as the person they don't want to see as the candidate. Back when I used to work on campaigns, when you blame the media, it means you've already lost. You blame the president of Mexico. Who is the Mexican president? I mean, and, no. First of all, there needs to, Ron Sanders needs an AI version of himself. It's actually more humanoid <laughs> because he's not human-esque. There's part of it. Also, I have to be honest because I wrote about this months ago. When Donald Trump was pummeling him, he wouldn't punch back. And what we know about the GOP base, they like strength. They don't like punching bags. This guy... I, I've seen welcome mats with more of a backbone. He doesn't stand up for himself. He won't punch back. So now the result is, if you're not going to punch back politically against a 77-year-old, two-time indicted guy, how are you going to stand up to the enemies of our country? And even the GOP base, little by little underneath, see that? The more you see of DeSantis personally, the less you like of him. There's something about him unlikable, inherently unlikable. Something or everything? Well, Perhaps sorry. everything. Uh, you know, um, you know Anna, I... I Representative Escamani, sorry. Let, let me ask you this, because in Florida, I wonder if he is starting to take an internal hit because the abortion ban alone makes him unelectable on a national scale, period. I mean, all of these, except for a handful of them uh, that are in the Republican primary, including Tim Scott, they all want a national abortion ban. But he has already implemented a six week one. So he's done. And I wonder if inside Florida, people are starting to realize that even some Republicans. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the loser of them all? I mean, DeSantis has not only failed his Republican base, but he's failing the general electorate because you're absolutely right, Joy. These positions he's taken, a six-week abortion ban is so extreme that people do not even know they're pregnant yet at that point. And of course, he wants to go even further. You know, he has made rhetoric and 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 speeches that want to ban abortion completely. And not only is it unpopular in our state, but it's unpopular around the country. And more and more Floridians are starting to see the light and realize that this guy 
is a performance and not even one that's worth paying for. I mean, he really has failed our state and for all the calls of the free state of Florida, I mean, people do not have the freedom to be healthy, safe or prosperous. Jennifer Rubin wrote a column in which she said even the lie that, you know, more people moving to Florida than our state, no longer true. So nearly 700,000 Floridians have left more than any other state. They're leaving and it's mostly younger people. I mean, they don't even let you have alimony if you get divorced. I have to now uh, bring in uh, the fart story. I'm sorry. I apologize, but okay. I have to do it because I have a sure, comedian in I'll front hear. of me. How is it that uh, uh, RFK Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, tried to have a meet the media lunch and it descended uh, into, I can't un- describe it any other way, but flatulence, loud, angry flatulence. What happened? It's RFK Jr. And he'll blame something in the water for that. <laughs> it's the vaccine. It was a side effect that causes extreme flatulence. Look, RFK Jr., people, there are people who call my show. They like one thing about him. Like, OK, you like that one. Here's 25 other things you should be concerned about. But what do they like about him? Some are, some who are really anti-vaxxers. They're anti-vaxxers. Right, yeah. so they'll do that. But then others go like, I like that he's against the, the not the war in, in Ukraine. I'm like, but he's not articulating any position. We, su- we support freedom, self-determination. You know, as a Palestinian American, I have a kinship to the people in Ukraine who want their own self-destiny. Right. But you have, you have him on that. And it things about in the water turning you transgender. Yeah. And, and some of it doesn't make sense in the not politically, like just intellectually. Like, I'm not really sure what's going on. Yeah. So flatulence, you know, <laughs> I mean, and the thing is, you know, Representative Eskamani, it the flatulence was started because two men got into an argument because one said climate change is a lie. And so he was angry because the question was posed to RFK Jr. about climate change and he didn't like it. So he started farting. Make that make sense. I can't. Uh, but I mean, the thing is, you live in a state where the climate crisis is it's here, right? It's already driving insurance insurers out of your state. Has the Republican, have your colleagues on the other side of the aisle accepted that? Because literally insurance companies are leaving. Well, I'm sad to say that I did read that article because I don't know who did it, honestly. And I was Page six, really sorry that I know that. Higher <laughs> context of it. Um, but no, you're right. I mean, in the context of, you know, reality check, climate change is real. Florida is directly impacted by it. If you spend time in South Florida, Miami, uh, we have high tide and, and flooding in our streets. And of course, extreme weather patterns and our water temperatures around us are, yeah. are historically high and unprecedented. So um, my Republican colleagues have taken no action on this. In fact, Governor DeSantis vetoed uh, millions yeah. of dollars for electric vehicle transition. Yeah. And uh, also malaria and the highest inflation rate in the country. Look it up. Uh, Representative Anna Eskamani and Dino Badala, they're going to stay right with me because we're going to play Who Won the Week right after this short break. <clears throat> well, folks, we made it to the end of another week, which means it's time to play our favorite game. That's the music we love. Who won the week? Back with me are Florida State Representative Anna Eskimani and Dean Obedala, comedian extraordinaire. Representative Eskimani, ladies first, who won the week? <laughs> this is a tough one. I almost went with orcas, but I decided <laughs> to go with the labor movement as they have just been. I mean, it's been incredible to see workers from UPS to our actors to writers all stand up in solidarity. And it's so inspirational to see. You know what? But Orcas is a really good second choice because they're eating up everybody. Uh, Dean, who won the week? <laughs> President Joe Biden had a phenomenal week. Inflation, the lowest in two years. First, yeah. New job claims are are down. The unemployment claims. NATO, he was there. He stood up to Putin, didn't suck up to Putin like Donald Trump. And today we learned he raised 70 plus million dollars in the first quarter. He did. Double of Donald Trump. So yeah. to me, President Joseph Biden. And- 
And the, the breaking news later this uh, later today, he uh, announced student loan relief. 800,000 people are going to get student loan relief who didn't think they were going to get it. That is an excellent choice. But I chose, I'm kind of like Representative Eskimani. Fran Drescher, baby. Who knew? Who knew that she was that much of a badass? Here she is doing a little bit of what she did this week. Is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. We are labor and we stand tall and we demand respect. And to be honored for our contribution, you share the wealth because you cannot exist without us. From the nanny to the boss, uh, Fran Drescher, Anna Eskimani, and Dean Obedala, thank you. And that is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.